traveled to Jerusalem, finishing his third missionary journey. Paul shared with the church in Jerusalem all that God had done among the Gentiles, the the non-Jews, as Paul traveled through the Middle Eastern area, around the Mediterranean Sea. Then the church leaders, in, in their response, in Jerusalem, they shared how many multitudes of Jews in Jerusalem had become Christians and told Paul all that God was doing there in Jerusalem. But then they told Paul in Acts chapter 21, verse 21, they said, but these Jews who have believed, they've been informed about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. You see, these Jewish Christians were hearing rumors that Paul was against Jewish customs, But in reality, Paul was simply pro-Jesus. Paul told the Gentiles they were not required to be circumcised in order to be saved. That we're all saved by faith in Jesus, not by our own works. Paul would tell the Jews that they're free to be circumcised. They're free to eat kosher. They're free to still be cultural Jews. But those works don't save them. Only faith in Jesus saves them. And so the church leadership, they came up with an idea there in Jerusalem to help Paul show his approval for the Jewish customs. You see, there were four Jewish Christians who were taking a vow at the temple there in Jerusalem. And they told Paul to join these men in their vow, to pay their way through this week of fasting and prayer and seeking the Lord so that the people would see that Paul was still okay with Jewish culture and customs. And so we pick up our story in Acts 21 and verses 26 through 40. We read about the riot in Jerusalem. Verse 26, it says, Then Paul took the men, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. Now, when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia... Seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. Paul had just spent two years in Ephesus, in that Roman province of Asia, in modern-day Turkey. And now these Jews from that same province have now come to Jerusalem for the feast time and they recognize Paul and they stir up the crowd and they bring three accusations against Paul. They say, Paul speaks against the Jews, the law, and the temple. And yet, once again, Paul was not so much against these things as he was pro-Jesus. You see, it was common for the Jews to think that they were pleasing to God simply because they were born a Jew. John the Baptist rebuked this attitude when he said in Matthew chapter 3, verse 9, he said, And do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. He says, Whoop-dee-doo, it doesn't matter that you were born from Abraham. God can make anybody born from Abraham. He can take rocks and make them born from Abraham. You see, being born a Jew doesn't bring salvation, but being born again does. There are some today who are spiritually confident because of their upbringing. They might say, well, I was raised in a Christian home. 
That's great. But if you were raised in a brick home, does that make you a brick? No. You see, what matters is, do you have a personal faith in Jesus? Our lineage doesn't matter. There are some today who, like the Jews of Paul's day, they're confident in their spiritual works. They think God is pleased with them because they have performed religious duties or they've accomplished spiritual goals. They say, well, I've been baptized, or I go to church all the time, or I went on that youth retreat. But that's great. Those works don't make you a Christian, though. That's backwards. You see, instead, we do those works because we are Christians. We read our Bibles, and we pray, and we love, and we serve because we are Christians. And the way that we become a Christian is by putting our faith in Jesus. Because the work of salvation was finished on the cross. That's what Jesus meant when he said, it is finished. There are some today who, like the Jews of Paul's day, they take pride in their place of worship. You see, the Jews idolized the temple itself. Some today idolize the church building, but there's nothing special about being in an old armory. Nor is there anything spiritual, pleasing to God about us taking a pilgrimage to go to Israel, the Holy Land, right? It would be amazing, but God's not like, well done, way to go. No, he cares about our heart, right? Location doesn't matter. And so we cannot please God by going to religious places. We can only please him by inviting Jesus to dwell in our hearts. And you know what happens when we do that? Jesus then makes us temples of his Holy Spirit. You see, the Jews took pride in their lineage, in their works, and the temple. But we should take pride in Jesus, in Jesus, and in Jesus. And if you want to take notes today and follow along, there's a note sheet in your bulletin you can do that with. You see, we can't please God with who we were born, or by what we've accomplished, nor by where we worship. We can only please God by putting our faith in God the Son. And so these Jews from the Roman province of Asia, they're there in Jerusalem. They recognize Paul and they stir up the crowd and they say, Men of Israel, help! There he is. There's the man. He's the one that's been causing all this trouble. He's the one that's been teaching everybody against our lineage and our works and our temple. And now verse 28 continues their complaint against Paul. They say, and there furthermore, Paul also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Verse 29, for they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. This last accusation was simply speculation. Since they saw Paul with this Ephesian, they assumed Paul must have taken him into the temple. And if you look at the diagram of the temple up here, you can see that it was a quite a large complex. But only that little building in the middle is the actual temple. And so around that temple, there's that very large courtyard called the Gentiles' Courtyard. Anybody could go there. But if you were non-Jewish, that's as close as you could get to the temple. You had to stop there. You see, there was an inner courtyard called the Courtyard of Israel. And those two courtyards were divided by a large wall. And on the doorways in this wall, they hung signs 
that said, No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught so doing will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. Isn't that welcoming? We're going to sell those signs for a buck for all those solicitors for you put on your porch, okay? No, I'm just kidding. But if we think about this, we think about the attitude of the Jews and just the structure of the temple and how it was all designed and how it really just said, hey, we're so glad you're here. Don't come closer or we will murder you. We really understand what Paul was speaking about in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, where he says, for Jesus himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. You see, in this passage, Paul's talking about the Jew and the Gentile and that middle wall of separation that was the wall around the inner courtyard from the outer courtyard, the wall that separated the Gentiles from the Jews. And Paul says, Jesus is our peace. And he's broken down that middle wall of separation. He's taken both Jew and Gentile and he's brought them together and he's made made us his own special people, the church. Jesus has done this. And if we understand the perspective of the Jews and we understand the structure of the temple and we understand their attitude, then we can better understand how significant it is that Jesus has taken people from all over the world and he unites them under the one name of Jesus, the only name given among men by which we must be saved. And so... Knowing all that, we now get back and understand why the crowd would be so upset when they heard this accusation that Paul took a Gentile and he took him through that doorway. Paul took a Gentile and he brought him into that inner courtyard that's only for the Israelites. And so, verse 30, And all the city was disturbed, and the people ran together, They seized Paul and they dragged him out of the temple. And immediately the doors were shut. Now as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. Notice there's no time for a trial. No time to wait for witnesses. The crowd was rioting and they were ready to kill Paul on the spot. But remember, Israel was under Roman rule. They were under the Roman Empire. And so as the riot is causing a ruckus, the Roman garrison right next to the temple, they hear and they see what's going on and the commander sends his soldiers in to rush into the mess. And so verse 32, he immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. So just kind of imagine what that might have looked like. I mean, they were already trying to beat Paul to death. But now as the Roman soldiers come in, they begin to step away and blend in with the crowd so that they don't get blamed for causing a riot under Rome's rule. The soldiers have gotten there after he's already been beaten, but before he's been killed. And so verse 33, Then the commander came near and took Paul and commanded him to be bound with two chains. And he asked who he was and what he had done. And some among the multitude cried one thing, and some another. So when he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, 
he commanded him to be taken into the barracks. When he reached the stairs, Paul had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. Again, just imagine what that might have looked like for Paul where he could barely walk and he gets to the stairs and he says, I can't do it. It hurts too much. And so verse 36, For the multitude of the people followed after, crying out, Away with him! Then as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, May I speak with you? He replied, Can you speak Greek? Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led the 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? Apparently the violence and the passion of this crowd led the Roman commander to think maybe Paul was some famous leader of an assassination group. But verse 39, Paul says, No, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city or no small city. And I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. So when the commander had given Paul permission, Paul stood on the stairs and he motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, singing. Now let's pause there for a moment and consider the situation. The Jews from Asia had slandered Paul's name. The crowd had just tried to kill him. They already beat him to where he couldn't even use the stairs. And now Paul wants to speak with them. As we read Paul's speech, and we'll get there in a moment, he doesn't even defend himself. If it were me, I would start with, hey guys, I didn't bring any Gentile into the temple. Okay? It wasn't me. I would never do such thing. I'm innocent. Right? And if I couldn't have the guts to at least say that, I would at least have the guts to say, hey Romans, just take me away. Save me. Get me out of here. Right? Before it gets worse. But not Paul. You see, instead of defending himself, Paul shares his testimony, sharing the story of how he came to know Jesus as his Lord and his Savior. And this reveals Paul's heart was more concerned about Jesus' name than his own name. And this leads us to our next fill-in-the-blank, a question for us to ask ourselves. Do my words reveal me to be more concerned with the name of Jesus or with the name of Jared or Lee or Don. You put your own name in there. But what do my words reveal me, my heart, to be more concerned with? Am I quick to defend myself and my reputation? Or am I quick to proclaim Jesus and His salvation? Can I live with being misunderstood? Can I live with being falsely accused by others? Can I live with suffering even though I was innocent? Because Jesus did all those things for me. And Jesus did all those things for you. Paul was okay. Paul could live with being misunderstood. With being mistreated by others. With being falsely accused. And he tells us why he was okay with it in Acts chapter 20 verse 24. As the people were warning Paul, look. If you go, you're going to suffer. Paul says in verse 24, But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel 
of the grace of God. That was Paul's heart. That was his attitude. And that's why he was able to endure such suffering. Now as we continue in Acts chapter 22, in verses 1 through 21, we get to read about Paul's testimony. Verse 1, Paul has got the attention of the crowd and he says, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. And when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. You see, in the Roman Empire, Greek was the common tongue. Greek was the language of business and politics and of the whole empire. But there in Israel, Hebrew was the language of the Jews. And so Paul begins to speak in Hebrew to relate to the Jews, to show them, look, I'm one of you. I can relate to you. And then he said in verse 3, I am indeed a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous towards God as you all are today. Gamaliel was one of the chief Pharisees of the day. It was like saying that he was brought up under Billy Graham or D.L. Moody or Charles Spurgeon. Then Paul says that he was just as zealous as they were towards God. And he says, we look at this next verse that shows Paul's zeal for God. It played out in verse 4. He says, I persecuted this way, the church. I persecuted Christianity to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as also the high priest bears me witness, and all the council of the elders, from whom I also received letters to the brethren, and went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. Remember, Paul, for perhaps the last 20 years since this happened, he has desired to share his testimony with the Jews in Jerusalem. And now he finally has this chance. And as he talks about the chief priests, who had given him orders to go and arrest Christians and to punish them. Paul is saying, look, they're right there. They're among you. These were my inner circle. These people that are still with you, they know who I am. They know what they called me to do, and they know the permissions they gave me to go and persecute Christians. You can ask them. And so Paul says, I was heading to Damascus so that even I could travel out of town to find those Christians and arrest them and bring them back to Jerusalem so that they could be punished. Paul's zeal for the Lord led him to arrest, to imprison, and even to kill Christians, all because Paul believed Christians to be enemies of the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now Paul is on the other side, as the crowd is so zealous for God that they too want to put Paul to death because they believe Paul is against the one true God. You see, this reminds us that zeal is only a good thing when its object is Jesus. Zeal is only a good thing when its object is Jesus. Paul says about the Jews in Romans chapter 10 verse 2, he says, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Still today, there are many zealous, passionate people 
who do not know Jesus or His salvation. And they're not going to be saved unless they do come to know Jesus. Because we don't go to heaven for being sincere. We don't go to heaven for being passionate about what we believe in. We go to heaven for receiving Jesus as our Lord. Paul continues his story in verse 6 and he says, Now it happened. As I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon, suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. So, verse 10, I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Arise, go into Damascus, and there you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. And since I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came to Damascus. A couple things I want to point out in this passage. First of all, I love that the moment Paul meets Jesus, and he says, Who are you, Lord? And Jesus says, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Paul's next question is, What do you want me to do? Isn't that wonderful? Shouldn't that be our heart as believers? To always, every day, say, Lord, what do you want me to do? Because my life is no longer my own. My life has been purchased by the blood of Christ. The second thing I want to point out is that back in verse 6 there, Paul tells us he was nearing Damascus around noon. It would have been very bright in that Middle Eastern sun around noon. And yet, when this light shone from heaven, the light was so bright that it blinded Paul for days. I love just imagining, trying to envision how crazy that would be to see a light from heaven that was so intense that I'm blinded for days until God miraculously heals me. Because it reminds me of how powerful God is and it reminds me of how humble I am, of how weak and temporary I am in comparison. So Jesus told Paul that his zeal had been misplaced, that Paul was actually fighting against God in God's name. And blind Paul was then led into the city by his companions. Look at verse 12. Then a certain Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me and he stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour I looked up at him. Then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you, that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Now, this call to be baptized, is not, it's not the baptism itself that saves us or saved Paul but it's an outward, physical, public confession of Paul saying, yes, 
I am submitting myself to Jesus. I'm putting my faith in Him. He is my Lord and my Savior. That's what baptism means. And so it was the faith in Jesus that washed Paul's sins away. And, and don't forget, this is Paul the murderer, so zealous for God that he was murdering Christians, trying to stop these crazy people. And yet even that sin was washed away because that's how great Jesus' sacrifice is on the cross. And so this was the turning point in Paul's story. The moment when Paul stopped trying to please God through his zealous works and sacrifices. When Paul humbly admitted that he's a sinner, deserving of hell, and he trusted in Jesus as his Lord and Savior. The reason Jesus can save us is because he lived a perfect life. He never sinned himself. It's also because he died on the cross and then rose again. You see, Jesus is the only one who can pay for our sins other than ourselves. If we don't have Jesus, then we pay for our own sin in hell. Jesus is the only other option where our sins can be paid for, and it's not by us. And so Paul continues in verse 17. He just told them all what has happened. And so then, now, it happened when I returned to Jerusalem. So Paul's now a Christian. He comes back to Jerusalem, and he was praying in the temple that he was in a trance. Verse 18, And saw him, Jesus, saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive you or your testimony concerning me. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then Jesus said to me, Depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. Paul explained how he tried to argue with God. Lord, remember, I'm the Pharisee of Pharisees. I'm one of them. I've got an in with the crowd. I could really be useful here. And God says, they're not going to listen. I know you have all the, the papers that say you are a Jew of Jews. You've lived that life, but they're not going to listen. I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. And so, in verses 22 through 30, we read how Paul is arrested. Verse 22, it says, And they listened to Paul until this word. And then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. What word caused such commotion? What word caused the crowd to stop listening to Paul's testimony and immediately enrage them once again? It was that word, Gentile. Gentile, a non-Jew. The Jews seemed okay as they heard how God revealed himself and miraculously spoke to Paul, a Jew, a Pharisee, zealous for the law. But the idea that God would send Paul to share with the Gentiles, that's too much. That's not okay. You see, the Gentiles, they're not even descendants of Abraham. The Jews would hear none of it because of their pride and because of their prejudice against the Gentiles. 
And so, verse 23, Then, as they cried out and tore off their clothes and threw dust in the air, the commander ordered Paul to be brought into the barracks and said that he should be examined under scourging so that he might know why they shouted so against him. And so with the rioters now enraged and murderous once again, the commander, the Roman guy, he has Paul brought inside and he plans to examine him under scourging. You know, in today in the, the police shows, they'll have like the spotlight and they'll be like, where were you last Friday, right? But for the Romans, they don't do that. They just get the whip with the sharp stuff at the end and they just beat you until you're almost dead and then they say, okay, tell us the truth. And they just go right to that. And so remember, Paul was there speaking, sharing his testimony in Hebrew. The Romans don't understand what he's saying. All they know is all of a sudden everybody's crazy again and they want to kill him. And so they're going to bring this Paul in and try to figure out what is going on, why everybody's so upset. Now, I want us to consider two things. First of all, Paul's arrest fulfills the prophecy spoken by Agabus back in Acts 21 and verse 11, where it says, When Agabus had come to us, he took Paul's belt, and he bound his own hands and his feet, and he said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And so the Jews indeed, they bound Paul but it was the Gentiles who took Paul into custody. The second thing I want us to consider is that in these two chapters, Acts 21 and 22, Paul has done nothing wrong. Think about that. Paul has continually sought to humbly live his life for Jesus and to share the gospel with anybody that he can. And look at Paul's reward. Slander, beatings, attempted murder, arrest, and riots. And now, Paul's currently being tied up so that he can be whipped to near death. It's a reminder that bad things happen to good people because we live in a fallen world among sinners with free will. I put quotes around good people because biblically, there's no one who is truly good except God. Right? Jesus tells us that when the rich young ruler came and spoke to him. But we as Christians can sometimes be stunned when we see trouble and hardship and loss in this life. Because we can sometimes think that Jesus promised to bring heaven on earth. But that's not actually what he promised. Jesus came to dwell among us to deliver us from our bondage of sin. To deliver us from what we deserve in hell so that we could be with God in heaven for all eternity. You see, it's in heaven that God's going to make all things right. But here on this earth, there is still pain. There is still suffering. There is still death. And it hurts. And God knows that it hurts. He dwelt among us. He experienced it himself. Paul preached Jesus. He tried to live as a Jew among the Jews in Jerusalem to become all things for all people so that by any means he might save them so that he could share with them, to relate to them as a fellow Jew zealous for God, but everything kept going wrong. It wasn't Paul's fault. They just didn't want to listen. 
So Paul simply continued pressing on. Paul continued taking opportunities to share Jesus with anyone who would listen. And I love that example. Keep pressing on with what God has called us to do. Even when our expectations go unmet. Even when the fruit that we want to see isn't there. It's not our job to accomplish things. It's our job to be faithful. So what has God called us to do as His church? What has God called you to do individually? Don't focus on what's going on around you. Just focus on, yes, Lord, I will continue to obey because it's not about this life. It's about everlasting life. Now back to our text. The Romans are preparing to whip Paul. Look at verse 25. And as they bound him with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who stood by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard that, he went and he told the commander, saying, Take care what you do, for this man is a Roman. You see, in the Roman Empire, not everybody was a citizen. But those that were citizens had special rights. For example, a Roman citizen could not be beaten or whipped without being convicted in a trial. So Paul humbly notifies the Romans that they're breaking their own law, hoping to avoid being brutally whipped. You see, your next fill in the blank, if you can escape suffering without disobeying God or hurting others, then do it. If you can escape suffering without breaking God's commands or hurting other people, then do it. The Bible describes Paul suffering more than any other apostle in Scripture. And yet Paul didn't like suffering. He wasn't like, I wonder how much pain I can get today. That would be weird. But instead, whenever he could, he avoided suffering. So long as he didn't disobey God's command. And so long as it wouldn't put others in harm. In verse 27, it says, Then the commander came and said to Paul, Tell me, are you a Roman? And he said, Yes. The commander answered, With a large sum I obtained this citizenship. So that commander, he actually purchased his Roman citizenship with money. And Paul said, But I was born a citizen. Then immediately those who were about to examine him withdrew from him. Remember, they were going to do more than examine, right? They were going to beat the socks off of him. And so they leave. And it says, And the commander was also afraid after he found out that he was a Roman and because he had bound him. The next day, because he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews, he released Paul from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. The commander's trying to set up a fair trial. He wants to figure out what is going on against this one man. He doesn't seem like he's that big of a deal, but everybody's upset about it. And we're going to pick up that story next week. As we close, I want us to consider how the Jews could not understand that God's grace was for everyone, even Gentiles. Your last fill in the blank. If we don't understand God's grace is for everyone, even the worst of sinners, then we don't understand our own sin. That was the problem the Jews faced. 
They believed that they were righteous, certainly more righteous than the Gentiles were. They didn't understand that they were guilty before the Lord because they were too busy comparing themselves with the non-Jews. And they thought they looked pretty good. And we can do that today, can't we? Hitler's our favorite guy to compare ourselves with because we look amazing compared to Hitler. And yet God doesn't say, as long as you're better than Hitler, you can come into heaven. No. He says, as long as you're perfect and you've never sinned, you can come into heaven. And we say, but I'm like top 5%. Got to give me some slack, right? No. It's not how it works. The only way we can enter into heaven, everlasting life, is to be clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. To be washed clean with His blood. Jesus declared in Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 12, He said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick... But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus came to save the sick, the sinners. And he also came to reveal that we're all sinners. So if you thought that you were better off than others, or if you thought that you were more worthy of God's favor, I've got some bad news. You're just as broken and pathetic as the rest of us. But here's the good news. Jesus loves you anyway. He loves all of us anyway. So, he invites all who are thirsty to come to him and drink. Anyone who recognizes their need for a Savior even if you think you are in that top 1% or 5%, you say, no, I'm st- I still fall short. Lord, I need you. He says, come, drink of me. In other words, put your faith in me. Believe that I will save you, not because you're good enough, but because I'm good enough to not only pay for your sin, but then invite you into heaven. Let's pray. God, we're so grateful for your mercy and grace that you have opened up to any and all who would believe in you. God, we thank you that as we look at our own hearts and our own lives, as we look in the mirror at ourselves, God, we confess and recognize that we are sinners. God, we fall short of your standard. So Lord, thank you for looking at us in our broken, messed up state and you say that you love us, that you went to the cross on our behalf so that you could offer salvation to any and all who would put their faith in you. Lord, if there's anybody listening today or online that has never put their faith in you, They've been trying to get by on their own righteousness or their own works or by comparing themselves with other people. Lord, may your Holy Spirit speak to their heart and just invite them to lay down their pride, to lay down their own name and to take up the name of Jesus and say, You are my Lord and my Savior. Holy Spirit, would you please fill us afresh with your power. 
God, give us the strength that we need to live for you, to walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh, to live like Paul that says, it's okay if I'm misunderstood. It's okay if I suffer, though I'm innocent. All that matters is the name of Jesus going forth in my life. God, we love you because you first loved us. Thank you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord together. He's worthy. He's the only one that's worthy of our praise. Well, church, if we can pray for you in any way, there's going to be men up front that would love to pray with you. Otherwise, on your way out, say hi to somebody else who is just as broken as you are. And we have a place for you. They're called life groups. Don't forget to sign up outside at the table on your way out. All right, God bless. Have a great week. Thanks for joining us.